Well, I've often reflected on the role of the crowds on Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a very stark contrast if you notice. We represent the crowds. And here we are in the beginning of Mass saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, this guy's the greatest thing ever. Yeehaw. And then, just a few minutes later, the crowds are saying, crucify him, crucify him. You know, this is, this is the nature sometimes of a mob mentality. It's not stable. It doesn't have strong convictions. It just, it's like a, a cloud that comes and passes away. You can't really rely on, on the crowds. So today I'd kind of like to have a little bit of reflection on, on uh, the, the role here between, I think, Pilate and the crowds. Okay? Pilate's another, another guy that I think about a lot over the years. I've said I always want to give a homily on, on Pontius Pilate. So here it is. Here's my homily I've been thinking about for years now. Um, if we look here in this passage, it says, uh, when Pilate saw that he was not... See, Pilate knew what was going on. He knew that the high priests and the leaders of the Jewish people were handing Christ over to be crucified um, out of envy. They knew it was trumped-up charges. They, he knew that this guy was not really a threat, that he really wasn't dangerous to the Roman Empire. Okay, And he just knew it was this kind of uh, internecine or like this sort of internal debate squabbles amongst this one people group. And so he wanted to actually release Jesus because he knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he didn't deserve to be scourged and crucified. So he tries different approaches with the people, kind of manipulating them in a certain sense. Okay, He bends the rules a little bit. So, for example, they've got this tradition that they're going to release a prisoner and uh, you know, on the feast of the Passover. So they put this, this guy, Barabbas, who's a real bad guy. And he says, okay, you want me to release Barabbas or Jesus? But wait a second, hold on, Pilate. Jesus is not even guilty. Why should he be, first of all, held in custody and guilty such that he should receive pardon and remission from you and from the people? What's going on? Okay, so you see, he's playing games. He's playing games. He's bending the rules, all right, because he thinks that this way he can kind of like play the people, release Jesus, kind of salve his conscience, and then just go on with his day and not have to worry about it. Well, the people don't fall for the trick. They say we don't we don't want Barabbas, or we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. Release Barabbas to us. This other guy, kill him. So when Pilate saw that a riot was breaking out. He took water and he washed his hands in the sight of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You guys worry about it. Was Pilate innocent of Jesus' blood? I'm seeing no's. I'm agreeing with you. Pilate was not innocent of Jesus' blood. We see here an amazing failure of a man who's in a position of responsibility to take responsibility and to do his job. And he did it because he was afraid of the people. He was afraid of popular pressure. He was afraid of popular opinion. He didn't want the trouble of opposing the majority. And so he says, okay. And it's this kind of weakness, this kind of abdication of someone's responsibility that gets Jesus killed. So this is the kind of 
the style of sin that I'm going to meditate a little bit on here today, in contrast to Jesus' virtue and righteousness. I'm going to contrast over against uh, the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate, another Roman, very interesting, a pagan Roman who lived about 200 years before Pilate. His name was Fabius, and he was chosen by the Roman people to be their general in a very important and dangerous war against uh, Hannibal, who was the leader of the Carthage, and uh, Hannibal was invading Rome, and he was a very, very good general, a very powerful military leader, and his army provided an incredible threat to the Roman people. And uh, Fabius was doing this thing where he would take his army, and he knew that if he in- in- engaged uh, Hannibal in you know, face-to-face, hand-to-hand combat, he'd lose, because Hannibal was really, really uh, formidable foe in that respect. And so what he did is this. He knew that he could wear Hannibal out. He knew he could wear him out because Fabius had more resources, more money. He was in his home turf, and he was just going to wear Hannibal out and let Hannibal go back home to North Africa and just get out of, out of Italy. And so he would do this thing where he would kind of like meet him on the top of a hill, and then when he would advance, he'd retreat and go back, and he was just always like in his face but never fully engaging him. And he was doing this actually for months at a time all across the northern part of Italy. And uh, his own men, Fabius' own men, were starting to call him a coward. Why don't you fight this guy? Let's go. Let's get him. All the people in Rome were hearing back what, what their general was doing in North Italy, and they're all starting to criticize him. What is this guy doing? He's a coward. He's a wimp. And uh, so this is... This is recorded in, uh, in an author from the first century by the name of Plutarch. So this is what Plutarch says about Fabius. When Fabius's friends reported to him the charges of cowardice that were being leveled against him by everybody, and they tried to persuade him to avoid the criticism of his men and the criticism of the Roman people by changing his war tactics and directly engaging the enemy, he answered, this is what Fabius said, I should be more cowardly than they are currently making me out to be if through fear of criticism I abandon my convictions. It's no cowardly thing to have a care for the safety of our country, but to be turned from one's course by people's opinions, by blame, and by misrepresentation shows a man unfit to hold a position of leadership. If I were to be thus turned away from my course of action, I would make this position of leadership the slave of those whose bad inclinations and errors it's my job to control and correct. Now that's a, a, a virtuous pagan, mind you. <laughs> that's a virtuous Roman. And Pilate should have followed the example of that virtuous Roman and not kowtowed and given in to popular opinion. And I was a school teacher before I became a priest, and uh, it was the, the common lore amongst teachers, be friendly but don't be their friend. When you're a young teacher, if you're only 23 years old, you're only four or five years older than some of your students. You have a tendency to almost try to want to be cool, get down on their level, okay, and make them like you. And they say, that's a total mistake. Don't do that, okay? Because eventually they're going to play you and then eventually despise you. And you're not going to be cool anymore in their opinion anyway, okay? So... One of the things, I was an English teacher, one of the things English teachers are always tempted to do is to not make their students write essays because it takes a lot of work on the part of the teacher. 
you got to correct essays. It's a lot of work. It's hours and hours. It's not like those math teachers that just do the Scantron. You know what I mean? That's easy. So it takes a lot of work if you really want, as an English teacher, to get your kids to write and to write well. Second draft? No, not the second draft. I knew I had to stay the course when I taught my students, and I was tough with them. But eventually, they began to write well, and they really did respect me because, you know what? They saw that it required a lot of work on my part to actually be tough with them. It required a lot of work on my part, and I was making the sacrifice for their good. And they saw that, and they appreciated it. Uh, managers, any of us a manager in a store, manager in any kind of business, a police officer, any kind of small-town civil leader, these are positions of leadership, okay? There's always the temptation in those positions of leadership, even if you're just a manager at you know the local grocery market. It doesn't matter where it is. There's always the temptation to wink at corruption, at to to turn a blind eye to the violation of the company policies or whatever it might be, and you set up a tacit agreement with the people that you're leading. I won't give you a problems a problem if you don't give me a problem. And it's this unspoken tacit agreement, and we just go along pretending that nothing's a problem when everything's a problem and things are falling apart because the policies are not being followed. So that's a temptation for any position of leadership. Okay, now, here's one really close to home. Parents. Parents. Okay. You know there's such a thing as a good, mean mom? Did you know that? Such a thing as a good, mean mom. Right? There's mean, mean moms, but then there's good, mean moms. Right? Good, mean moms know that they need to be tough with their kids, and their kids... They need to give what their kids need and not what their kids want. You see the difference between needs and wants, all right? So the good, mean mom keeps her word even when it's hard. A good, mean mom gives models and expects respect. A good, mean mom knows her child's friends, both their first and their last names, and where they live. A good, mean mom does not let her daughter wear just anything. A good mean mom insti- uh, insists on set dinner times, bedtimes, and curfews. Many children at that time will say, Mom is so mean. No, my mom's meaner than your mom. Listen to what she did. I can't believe it. Okay? But in the long run, in the long run, they see that it was a tough love and that you really sacrificed for their well-being and that their character was better off for it. And that you didn't capitulate to the demands and to the voices of the of the kids, of those whose responsibility it was yours to guide and to correct. So we don't, though, need to be in a position of leadership necessarily to capitulate to the crowd. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Think about that passage. What does that mean? That means that those who end up going to heaven are going to be fewer. They're not going to be in the majority. They're not going to be the crowd. It's going to be the less, the minority, not the majority. Even the Catholic Church, for as big as it is, it's spread all over the world. It's got a consistent doctrine, consistent testimony across the ages. 
it's still relative to everybody else, just a, a small group of people. It's not the majority of human beings in the world. Okay? Especially devout Catholics who take their faith seriously. It's a small percentage of all human beings in the face of this earth. And uh, so it's not the crowd. It's a little flock. Jesus speaks about a little flock. Um, no one gets into heaven who doesn't swim upstream. Did you ever hear that expression? No one gets into heaven who doesn't swim upstream. So let's look in contrast to the weakness of Pilate, to the, the virtue of Christ our Lord. Everybody was against him. Everybody was against him. Actually, some of the ladies turn out looking pretty good. Some of the ladies who were following him, they offered him, you know, something to drink. Pilate's wife said, you know, don't condemn this guy. I suffered much in a dream. He's a righteous man. Get away from him. But for the most part, for the most part, it was just the, the voice of a, of a woman here or there. For the most part, everybody was against Jesus. And yet, he stayed the course. He knew what was right. And he didn't capitulate to the majority. He didn't fear the crowd. He knew the task that God had given to him. And he clung to it with great fidelity. And the result of it, my brothers and sisters, is our salvation. So this coming Holy Week, let's follow Jesus as he journeys to the cross. This journey of his was a lonely one. Let's keep him company in that loneliness by being like him and having the courage to go it alone if need be. If we follow him in this way, yes, we will have to go through the sufferings of Good Friday, but we'll also be one with him when he rises on Easter Sunday.